Monday 20th of July 2015 started out like any other day for 60-year-old Dr. Mary Yoda. She woke around 6.30am thinking of the crazy busy day that she had ahead of her. She had 30 clients booked in for that day, meaning a 10-hour shift, but she loved her work and she loved her life. She'd met her husband, Bill Yoda, in college back in 1975, and together they'd had three children and owned a well-loved local chiropractic family care practice in Whitesboro, New York State. For the last 28 years, they'd had a lot of success in their business. Mary herself was in great health and had daily routines for it to stay that way. And on top of her chiropractic business, she also ran an in-office supplement business. She was known and loved in her community. Someone that people looked up to as an inspiration to achieve a healthier lifestyle. But this healthy woman would be dead two days later and the autopsy would send shockwaves through the community. Hey Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan. It was around 7.45am when Mary left for work, getting there just before 8. There were already patients waiting for her at the office. The Yoda's receptionist was also working that day, Caitlin Conley. She'd worked with them for quite a few years and not only was she a friend of the family, but she'd also dated their son Adam for a while. She started with them in 2012 as a part-time receptionist while Adam was working there briefly too. And then Caitlin became a full-time employee in 2013. So Mary arrives and cracks on with work as usual. During her lunch break, she goes and visits her 93-year-old mum who had just moved in with Mary's sister Sally, wanting to just check in and see if she'd settled in okay. She then gets back to the office around 1.30 and starts to feel ill. But like I said earlier, she had a super busy day, so despite not feeling great, she tried to continue working. It soon, though, became so unbearable, and what she assumed was a stomach bug was getting worse and worse and had reached the point that just getting through her appointments was almost impossible. So she left to go home. By the time she got home, she was having nausea, vomiting, diarrhoea and severe abdominal pain and spent most of that evening and night in the bathroom. The following morning, things weren't any better. She was pale, drained and exhausted, understandably. We've all been there, right? Now, her husband Bill didn't really know what to do, so he calls their daughter, Leanna, who was also a doctor, and she tells her dad to bring Mary straight up to the hospital. So he does and they get there and they run every single test that they can think of while she is literally purging everything in her system. Finally, it seems that everything is out and she starts feeling better. But doctors say to her, look, this this is bad. This is the worst case that we have seen. So they say to her, stay overnight just in case and also so that we can run some more tests. But not only that, just get fluids in her to try and restore everything that she's lost and avoid dehydration. So Bill is feeling confident by this point that Mary is heading in the right direction So he says he's going to go home, get some sleep, come back the next morning with a few bits or to pick her up. But in what would be an abrupt and super strange turn of events, Mary's condition rapidly declined. 
At 5.30am the next morning, so by now this is July 22nd, Bill was woken by loud banging on the front door. He answers it and he's met by two state troopers telling him that the hospital have been desperately trying to get hold of him. Mary had suffered a heart attack in the night and had been moved into the ICU and it wasn't looking good. So Bill calls their children to let them know just how bad things are and heads to the hospital. Throughout that morning, she goes into cardiac arrest another seven times and by 2.54pm, she's declared dead. Although an autopsy was performed, it showed that Mary's tissues and organs had been under serious attack. But remember how I said that she was super health conscious. So it literally makes no sense that she would just randomly die from an illness that no one knew about and one that doctors had been unable to find while she was in the hospital. Investigators were told by the medical examiner's office that her organs looked like they would after aggressive rounds of chemotherapy. And knowing that this obviously wasn't the case, they looked for what could mimic that. And what could mimic that was death by poison. It was the only reasonable explanation. So they start testing Mary's body and initially it's tested for like all the common used poisons such as arsenic and cyanide, but they all come back negative. Despite this, detectives were still completely convinced that there was foul play involved in Mary's death. It's like the only explanation to them. And it wasn't until a poison control expert suggested that they run tests for colchicine, a medication used to treat painful conditions such as gout. And when that drug is taken, it has to be done in super small and accurate doses because if it's taken incorrectly, it is highly toxic. It also has a narrow therapeutic index, which basically means that the window between a therapeutic dose and a fatal one is very small. Now, another use for colchicine is also to enhance crop growth. And it was discovered that not only had Mary been poisoned by colchicine, but she had enough agricultural grade colchicine to kill her 15 times over. And it is fast acting. Like once ingested, it takes between two and eight hours to take effect. So the second investigators find this out, they waste zero time in opening up a murder investigation. Now this had already been going on a few months, so they had already lost precious time and they need to move fast. Now obviously the local community is in a complete state of shock, but on November 23rd, 2015, both the medical examiner's office and the sheriff's department receive an identical anonymous letter. But before I get to that though, let's just backtrack. The first suspect that the police immediately investigate is Mary's husband, Bill. And we all know that the spouse is always the first person to be suspected. And more often than not, it does prove to be accurate. It wasn't just that though that had put Bill on their radar. They didn't feel like it was particularly normal behaviour for a grieving widow to begin dating, are you ready? His wife's sister. And especially so quickly after her shock sudden death. This isn't, you know, a case of she's had cancer for years and it's a slow, gradual death. This has come completely and utterly out of the blue. And on top of that, the fact that her death was so obviously a murder. 
So he really, really is on their radar as suspicious. And rumours begin to swell that Bill had actually been seeing Mary's sister Kathleen before she had died. Bill and Kathleen both vehemently denied that there had been an affair and it had purely been because Kathleen's husband had also recently died as well and the two of them said that it was their shared grief that had brought them together initially and then it eventually turned into more. But detectives weren't really buying it. Believing that Bill had poisoned his wife both for financial gain and to be with her older sister. But the financial gain was proving a little bit difficult because there wasn't actually a life insurance policy that was going to him. And their attention was now about to shift to a new suspect when they suddenly received the letter that I just mentioned. This letter pointed directly to Adam, Bill and Mary's son. The author of the letter knew that Mary's death had been caused by colchicine toxicity and claimed that not only had Adam confessed to the murder of his mother, but he'd also explained how he did it and where he kept the poison. According to the letter, Adam had put the colchicine in her daily supplements when he was at her house. And the author claims that he took these drastic measures because he resented Mary for not helping him in the financial struggles that he was having. Now, she'd always bailed him out whenever he needed. He was a complete mummy's boy and she always came to the rescue. But recently, she'd been taking a firmer stand and they'd fallen out. But the most interesting part of the letter was the ending. It told detectives exactly where the culture scene could be found. And that was in Adam's car. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh. So investigators knew that they needed to interview Adam quick. But they just wanted to check a few of the things mentioned in the letter first, specifically the financial troubles. And it didn't take long to confirm that, yes, he was in a financial mess, as the letter suggested. So police contact him and ask if they can search his car. He says, OK, but I want to consult my attorney first before saying yes. He does. 
The attorney agrees, and so does Adam, and police begin searching his car. Now, the letter had mentioned a specific area of the vehicle, so they head straight for that bit, and boom, they find a small bottle labelled Colchicine, and a receipt for where and when it was bought. Now, Adam was in the middle of smoking a cigarette when the bottle was found, and officers on the scene say that it nearly fell out of his mouth in shock, but more to the point that they believed it was genuine shock by what they had just uncovered. The culture scene was under the seat, and conveniently, right next to it, was the receipt, as I mentioned, showing where and when it was bought. And it was an online transaction with the email on the receipt, which was Mr. Adam Yoda1990 at gmail.com. Now listen, I grew up watching Columbo, and I'm not buying this, I don't know about you. Talk about convenient. The receipt showed that one gram of colchicine had been bought and shipped to the chiropractic family care, care of Adam and Mary Yoda. In disbelief, he begged police to believe him when he said it wasn't his, and that also the email wasn't his. He didn't have an account using Mr. Adam Yoda. Luckily for Adam, he also had an alibi. When Mary got sick, he was in Long Island visiting his sister and had been there for five days. Taking this into consideration, the anonymous letter telling police exactly where to find the poison seemed too convenient. See, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I mean. It just, mm, something wasn't adding up. And that email address had me howling too. I don't know anyone that has such a formal email address. I get it if it's a work one, but for personal email, that's pretty formal. I mean, let's be honest, most of us have something super embarrassing that we made up when we were like 13, right? So ruling Adam out, investigators asked themselves, well, could Adam be being framed? But who would do that? And the only person they could come up with was his ex-girlfriend, Caitlin Conley. Now, remember, Caitlin was the receptionist at the family chiropractor clinic. Although brief, Caitlin and Adam's romance had been dramatic and turbulent. They argued a lot, eventually breaking up after Adam claimed that Caitlin falsely accused him of rape. Not long after, Adam started seeing someone else, but then ended things and got back together with Caitlin after Caitlin claimed to have suffered from an ectopic pregnancy with what would have been Adam's child. I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of getting bunny boiler psycho vibes, but let's keep going. They then broke up again after Adam suspected that Caitlin had cheated on him with his best friend, and this time they stayed broken up. Now, despite all of this, Caitlin had maintained a good relationship with Mary, and the 23-year-old stayed working as her office assistant. So police bring her in for an interview and ask if she knows how Mary died. She said that she'd heard that it was due to some kind of toxin, but when they told her the name, she said she'd never heard of it. Now, the package had obviously been signed for by her when it was delivered to the office, but that doesn't necessarily mean guilt, because if you've ever been an office assistant or you've worked in an office, you know that generally that's standard procedure. Just going back to the anonymous letter for a moment, the crime lab had done an analysis on it and discovered that it was female DNA under the stamp of one of the envelopes. So police collect DNA samples from Caitlin. And while waiting on the results, Caitlin is called back multiple times for questioning, finally cracking, to a degree, 
on December 21st, 2015, during her third interview, she admits that she had written the anonymous letter that implicated Adam in Mary's murder. She told police that she had written it anonymously because she was afraid of Adam, who she said had been abusive to her during their relationship. But once Caitlin made this admission, it backfired on her and she became the prime suspect. Which, to be honest, does seem legit to me. Like, why would it have taken you so long to admit to police that you'd written the letter when you can see that they're kind of starting to look at you for the crime? Hearing about what was going on with Caitlin, Adam goes back to police, telling them that in April 2015, he had gotten sick after taking supplements that were given to him by Caitlin. She'd given him supplements to help him focus on an exam that he had coming up, and he suspected that Caitlin may have laced the supplements with a non-lethal dose of poison. So police go back into the email that was on the receipt, delving into the IP addresses used to access it, and they find that it was created back in September 2014 on a computer that Caitlin had access to at work. Not only that, but the only other places that it had been accessed were on her phone and her home computer. Now, this is wild. I mean, I couldn't help laugh because it's just so dumb and juvenile. But another indicator that the account hadn't been created by Adam was the password for that account was Adam is gay. Two purchases of Culture Scene had been made on her work computer. Police then also discover two prepaid visa cards in Adam's name. And when they checked the serial numbers, one of the cards matched the one on the receipt. And both cards had been bought by Caitlin. So remember the DNA swabs that they'd taken from her during her first interview? Well, they checked both hers and Adam's DNA on both of the bottles of culture scene and the wrapper that it had come in. They found no trace of DNA from Adam. Instead, they found Caitlin's DNA all over it. Police were like, well, this is a slam dunk, okay? We've got a bang to rights with all of this evidence. So Caitlin was charged with Mary's murder in May of 2016 with police believing that her motive was to either create a traumatic event in Adam's life so that the grief would just be so much and it would bring them back together, or just plain old revenge for their breakup. Their theory being that Caitlin had poisoned Mary's daily protein drink, which she most likely could have accessed while Mary was with a patient. So the trial gets underway with the prosecution arguing the theory of this revenge slash trauma. They then told the jury that they believed that when it didn't go according to plan, Caitlin was mad, so took it a step further by framing Adam. So what they mean by that is obviously Mary dies, Adam doesn't go running into Caitlin's arms, so she writes this anonymous letter to frame Adam. The defence, though, was like, nah, uh-uh-uh. This is all just circumstantial evidence. Because of the nature of her job as receptionist, she touches all packages that comes into the office. Plus, she's not the only one that uses the computers in the office. They said that Caitlin had no reason to kill her. If anything, she'd lost a mentor and a good friend. So they offered the jury a different perspective 
theorising that the police's initial gut instinct about it being Bill was correct and that he was the true culprit. Not only did he have a romantic motive, with a neighbour testifying that they'd seen Bill and Kathleen kissing in the car prior to Mary's death, not after, like Bill and Kathleen were claiming, but he had also gotten $400,000 as an inheritance from his dad. And the defence speculated that he didn't want to share this inheritance with Mary. The couple were in debt, and after paying off that debt, there wouldn't have been much left. So he poisoned her protein shake the morning of the 20th, and that's why he decided at the last minute not to go into work that day. Then, when she'd started improving, he then laced the cough drops and her inhaler that he had brought to her during her hospital stay, which is what caused her condition to dramatically decline through the night. And it might also be worth noting that Kathleen is pretty well off in her own right. So again, more financial motive for him to kill Mary and marry Kathleen. So when I was researching this, I was all like, yep, yep, for sure, it's Caitlin. Absolutely. Bang to rights. Then I read the defence's argument and I was like, ooh, okay, but that's totally plausible too. And I guess I wasn't the only one. Because when it came time for the jury to deliberate, the result was a hung jury due to the fact that they had reasonable doubt. So five months go by and the second trial begins. This time, the defence team try a different tactic. Instead of blaming Bill, they shift the blame to Adam. Initially, I completely forgot my law qualification and I was thinking, well, well, well. You tried to take Bill down and now you're switching it up to Adam. That's just going to make the whole thing suspicious. And then I put on my qualified hat and I remembered that the defence's job is literally to put information out there that will cause reasonable doubt. Obviously, it needs to be legit. They can't just offer up any old rubbish. It needs to be alternate scenarios that are plausible enough to make the jury unsure. So Bill was a possibility. And now they're saying, hey, Adam is also a possibility. So there is a lot of reasonable doubt going on here, Mr. and Mrs. Jury members. So why are you all looking at Caitlin? She's not the only one who could have done it. So in the first trial, Caitlin was on the hook for second degree murder. I believe it would have been first degree murder, but from what I could see, New York State has slightly different laws that make what Mary's killer did second degree. But during this second trial, the jury were told that this time if they couldn't agree on second-degree murder, they could consider first-degree manslaughter, which is when someone intends to injure or harm someone severely, but instead ends up killing them. So kind of a mistake, but kind of not. Adam takes the stand and reveals that Caitlin had plugged her phone into his computer around the time of his mum's death and created a backup. And through this backup, they found that she had been doing searches for which are the most deadly of the poisons. The defence, though, tried to discredit this, saying that it was Adam framing Caitlin and not the other way round, and that he'd been abusive during their relationship and this was just another of his abusive tactics. The jury struggled again and went to the judge to explain that they really couldn't decide, but he told them, to go back 
and keep deliberating. So they did, and on November the 6th, 2017, Caitlin was found not guilty of second-degree murder, but guilty of first-degree manslaughter. Two months later, she was sentenced to 23 years in prison, but in her final statement, she still maintained her innocence. Usually, I feel the cases we cover are pretty straightforward, but I do get in this one why the jury struggled. Even after being convicted, really interestingly, it's not just Caitlin and her family who believe that this was a miscarriage of justice. Shockingly, some of Mary's own sisters to this day believe that Caitlin is innocent. Three of Mary's sisters are not convinced at all that it was Caitlin that poisoned her, instead believing that it was Bill, which considering another of their sisters is now with Bill makes this super interesting to me. Their argument is one that I mentioned that was presented by the defence in the first trial. And that was that when Mary first got to the hospital, she was sick, but she wasn't like deathly ill. Doctors didn't think she was about to die there and then. And she was still purging everything out of her system. Doctors then started rehydrating her and she began perking up. So in their opinion, the sudden change in her health after she'd purged everything out of her system suggests to them that Mary had been re-poisoned with a lethal dose while she was in the hospital. Caitlin never came anywhere near the hospital. Also, remember the police had come knocking on Bill's door. Mary's condition was deteriorating and Bill was suddenly unreachable by hospital staff. Now, I get that she was feeling better, so maybe he wasn't too worried, but I still feel like if your wife's in the hospital, you kind of have one ear open in case the hospital does call. Allegedly, when he answered the door to the cops, he told them that he would get to the hospital as soon as possible. Now, the hospital was only 15 minutes from their house, but he turned up an hour after the police left. Yeah, okay, he could have been showering and dressing, but I'm pretty sure that if the police turned up at my door, told me the hospital had been trying to get hold of me because my husband's health had deteriorated and he was now in the ICU, I don't care whether I was showered, dressed or not. I would have been in that car following them back to the hospital. In fact, I would have said, put your sirens on, okay? Let's get there as quick as possible. But he didn't. He got there an hour after they left. And finally, although this includes Adam too, Mary's sisters found it super odd that Bill and Adam were a little too eager to cremate Mary's remains, weeks before toxicology reports had even come back. Not only that, but Bill and Adam hadn't reached out to extended family to even tell them what had happened with Mary, again, causing even more suspicion amongst her family. They think that Bill, or Bill and Adam, had even lied to Leanna. Mary's eldest daughter, because Leanna had told her aunts that Mary had died from ascending cholangitis, which is a rare bacterial infection, which wasn't true. And being a doctor herself, it's not the type of thing that you'd get wrong or a misunderstanding. In fact, when they asked her what that was, she explained in detail to Mary's sisters. But it wasn't until a month later that they discovered that the medical examiner had actually ruled her death unknown pending toxicology. A physician told one of the sisters that they were anxiously waiting on the results because none of them had ever seen anything like Mary's unexplained death. So where would Leanna have got that cause of death from? 
So what did they think Bill's motive was? Money. They think that the $400,000 that Bill received was enough for one person to live off, but not two. Bill had wanted to retire for quite a while, but because of that debt that I'd mentioned earlier, they hadn't been able to afford to until Mary died. He had gone back to work for a few weeks in the October of 2015, but then left again and took retirement permanently. Interestingly, the day that he went back to work also happened to be the day that the police report had been filed officially opening Mary's case as a homicide investigation. And her sisters believe that during those few weeks, Bill and Adam began executing a plan to frame Caitlin for the murder. The two had always had a pretty strange relationship and weren't very close at all before Mary died. Adam was 27, hadn't worked for quite a few years until not long prior to the death. He also admitted to blackouts, alcohol abuse and fits of rage. So he was the polar opposite of his dad. But now, suddenly, they were spending huge amounts of time together and often late into the night. But when they were called out on that, they just claimed that they were bonding and playing board games. Now, just to play devil's advocate, the death of a loved one, especially your wife or your mum, could very easily make you put life into perspective and realise just how quickly things can change. So they could have well realised that they needed to fix their relationship because tomorrow isn't promised. Once Mary's case had been filed, police had requested all of her supplements, but her daily pill sorter was never handed in. Now, remember when we said that during the trial, it was likely her protein drink that had been poisoned? Well, her medical records from the hospital didn't show that Mary had even had a protein drink that day. She instead told doctors when she was admitted for the night that she had had a protein bar and then grilled chicken for dinner. Bill's testimony, though, totally contradicted those records. He said that she'd had a protein drink and nothing for dinner even going as far as testifying to say that Mary hated protein bars, which was a huge red flag to her sisters because they knew that she ate them all the time. Like I said, more witnesses had come forward claiming that Bill's relationship with Mary's sister Kathleen had definitely started before Mary's death. And it turns out that Bill really hadn't been honest with investigators because along with those witness testimonies, their text messages showed a little bit more than brother and sister-in-law. All their texts referred to each other as honey or sweetheart and said things like, I love you and I'm missing your arms. And this again, like I said, was all before Mary died. Whether it was Bill or not, Mary's sisters 100% feel that the evidence that convicted Caitlin was circumstantial and that countering evidence they found equals reasonable doubt. Now, I sat back and I looked again at the things that they had found that implicated Caitlin, and I do kind of agree with Mary's sisters. For example, the prosecution claimed that the email account used to purchase the culture zine was created on a computer that was only used by Caitlin. But this is an open office. It's not in a locked, kind of tucked away place. So both Adam and Bill had access to the computer as well. And even though Bill said he had never used that computer, there were witnesses that said, bull. They had 100% seen him on that computer before. Not only that, but Bill had software on his computer that allowed him to access that specific computer 
from his home office. Okay, so I hear you. You might be saying, Belle, they found the email address had been accessed from Caitlin's personal mobile phone. Well, here's some more reasonable doubt for you. Not only was her phone not password protected, but all office employees had to keep their phones in a separate room during their shift, which would have given Bill access to her phone. Just a side note, who the heck is not password protecting their phones, especially when you know it's out of your sight all day? I don't know. Anywho, back to the reasonable doubt. Adam also frequently used Caitlin's personal laptop and they shared an Apple ID. One super big factor in why both Caitlin's defence and Mary's sisters believe that Bill had something to do with Mary's death is his prior knowledge of culture scene. Back in the 80s, Bill had used the agricultural grade culture scene, exactly the same type used to poison Mary, to alter weed in order to make them grow all female plants because this added the potency to the herb and increased the THC. I don't really fully understand, but basically it just makes it super, super more potent and gets you high quicker, I guess. So why during the trial did he say that he wasn't aware of the drug? And not only was it back in the 80s, but in recent years, both he and Mary had ordered the drug as they were both still keen gardeners and had used this on and off for different reasons. Whereas Caitlin had zero knowledge of what the drug was. And the being poisoned two separate times also flies because her post-mortem shows such high levels of the drug that surely there's no way she could have arrived at the hospital with that much of it in her system after vomiting and having diarrhoea all afternoon and into the night. Then, to get better, and with zero warning, get sick again, and go into cardiac arrest seven times. It does seem super fishy. The cough drops and the inhaler were also never tested by toxicology experts. So, okay, it's not concrete proof, but it does cause reasonable doubt. Then there's another theory. Why not give her a huge dose to begin with? Well, Mary's sisters speculated that the reason she was poisoned twice was because Bill knew that when you die at home, a toxicology report is the first thing that gets done. So they believe that he poisoned her once to make her sick enough to kind of need to go to the hospital, but not enough to kill her, but then give her the lethal dose once she's there. And he was probably hoping that no autopsy would be done because usually the family have to request one. And the only reason it was done was because something to do with the hospital's liability, I believe. So many little things that could or should have been tested never were. And this one is a biggie. Caitlin claimed that she was off work from late 2014 through to early 2015, which was the time frame when the culture scene was purchased from her work computer. Great, brilliant. So let's just have a look at the payroll books and we can confirm that yes, she was off during that time. Solid alibi. Bill, though, when asked for it, claimed that their payroll books had been lost. And I won't lie, I find that super, super bizarre. I have been in payroll, I've been in human resources, I've worked in that kind of field, and you don't just lose payroll books very easily, let me tell you. Then I thought, But hang on a minute, they found Caitlin's DNA on the package of Colchazine. So if she was supposedly off work during that time, then how do you explain that? Like we explained it away that, you know, she would have had access to all the packages because that's part of her job. 
But if she wasn't there, then that's not part of her job. Well, Caitlin's defence team have an answer to that. They said when Caitlin was back at work, Bill had asked her to go and get a bunch of packages and bring them to him. His reasoning was that he had ordered Mary a birthday present and didn't want the surprise to be ruined. She said she remembered thinking it was a bit strange because it was months prior to Mary's birthday, but not having any reason to suspect that she was being set up to be incriminated, she did it. The culture scene was ordered on January 5th, 2015. So the prosecution had argued that Caitlin murdered Mary either to get back together with Adam or to get revenge, right? But again, supporters of Caitlin and Caitlin herself said that she had been in a relationship with someone else for five months by the time that Mary died. Caitlin even had evidence to dispute the claim of wanting Adam back in the form of text messages that showed Adam being the one begging her to be with him again. But for whatever reason, those texts weren't admitted in full as evidence in the trial. Also not admitted into evidence was the results of a lie detector test that she had taken where she passed with flying colours. Now I know more often than not lie detector tests aren't admissible in court but still they could have at least been mentioned. The prosecution had painted Caitlin as an evil vindictive ex-girlfriend yet Mary and everybody else that she worked with thought pretty highly of her. Adam's cousin who he was super close with, David King, is also supportive of Caitlin. After Mary died, Adam moved in with him for a while, but it ended abruptly. David said that Adam had been acting super strange and when he left, he left behind documents about IP addresses and accessing desktops remotely. Now, I'm discounting the acting super strange because grief affects people in all sorts of different ways, but what he left behind is intriguing. And not only that, but David testified for the defence team and he was well known as being very close to Adam. So why would he not testify on behalf of Adam? And you want to know another huge red flag for Mary's sisters? Bill and Adam were given immunity by agreeing to testify against Caitlin. Now, maybe I've watched way too many cop shows, but don't you usually need immunity when you've got something to hide? Like, essentially, isn't it usually a case of, okay, if I give you this piece of information, you need to let me off with X. Yeah? Just me? Or are you with me? In July last year, Caitlin filed an appeal based on her constitutional rights. So she'd already filed appeals based on her conviction, and both time they had been denied. So she can no longer appeal her conviction, like she's exhausted all possibilities on that. So this is her only recourse now. So the constitutional rights that she's saying weren't met was that she didn't have an effective attorney. This time, the appeal was granted a hearing, which took place in November last year, so literally just a couple of months ago. The first point that her new team raised was that her first attorney from the first trial, Christopher Pelly, had acknowledged after the fact that he had made a mistake when reviewing a search warrant for Caitlin's phone, and that he failed to notice that they didn't use the word search. The judge in November said, okay, fine, I get that, but because that case ended in a hung jury, there's nothing actually I can overturn. So move on, next. The next issue was from the second trial. They felt that her lawyer, Frank Policelli, hadn't used the best witnesses or the best evidence. 
So he got up in November and testified defending his strategy and how he chose witnesses and how he decided which evidence to present to the court. He ended his testimony reminding the court that he had done a good job because ultimately she'd been acquitted of murder because she'd been sentenced based on the manslaughter conviction, not the second degree murder that she was initially tried for. A third witness then testified, and that was an expert in the medical field. His testimony was all based on how long the symptoms of colchicine poisoning would take before they took effect. So, like I said, that was in November, and the judge is currently reviewing all the evidence and will make a judgment once done. If successful, Caitlin will get a brand new trial for the third time. So, yes, this case has been resolved in terms of a verdict, but has justice been served? The facts are, the morning of the 20th, Mary was fine. The only other person working that day was Caitlin. By the afternoon, she was super sick. Caitlin's DNA was found on the bottle of poison. She wrote the anonymous letter pointing to Adam. Her phone showed searches for the drug and the order was placed from her work computer and paid for with prepaid visa cards that she bought. Those are the facts. But here's where reasonable doubt can be disputed. Bill started seeing his sister-in-law five months after Mary died. Now that's not wrong, but it's not a great look. Three of Mary's own flesh and blood think that it's Bill and are heavily supporting Caitlin, not just because of his relationship with their other sister, but also because of how fast he wanted her cremated. Then Mary's nephew David lived with Adam after her death and said what he left behind was definitely odd. Other interesting points are the text messages from Adam to Caitlin that clearly show how abusive he was and that it was him begging her to come back, whereas the prosecution's entire argument was centred around Caitlin wanting Adam back. Then there's the fact that neither Bill nor Adam can ever be prosecuted because of the immunity deal that they took. And finally, there was six months between the time the poison was ordered and the time of Mary's death. Would you really wait that long if you've decided that that's what you're going to do? I'm honestly so conflicted with this case. I have read so many Reddit posts where it just makes me flip-flop from, yep, she definitely did it, 100%, to, oh, oh, I just don't know. I'm just struggling to truly find a motive. But then again, people who murder aren't exactly fully sane, let's be honest. Yes, she comes across as likeable and the girl next door, but again, that means nothing. And then I flip-flop again, because there's the fact that in both trials, the jury literally couldn't reach a decision, and there was only a verdict in the second trial, because the judge said, try harder. So that says to me that the prosecution didn't produce clear-cut evidence against Caitlin. Honestly, guys, this is such a tough one, but if I'm really pressed into giving my opinion... I'd probably say that they've put the right person away. But bottom line, for now, unless the judge grants a new trial, Caitlin will not be eligible for parole until 2037. To see today's case photos, click on the link in the case description to join the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group. Until next week, stay safe.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.